Um, So today's reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses um, 15 to 29. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom and said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only I have found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Thanks, Caleb. Some very interesting things come into light there. Stay with us, we're going to have a closer look at that. My name is Josh, <clears throat> I work for Christchurch Liverpool, um, and we're going to spend a few moments um, looking at uh, not only what that text says, but what God is saying to us through it. So uh, let's just pray as we begin. <clears throat> Dear Father, we, um, we pray that you, as, as we look at a challenging passage like this, something that tells us things that, that we ordinarily don't think about, Lord, we pray that uh, by your wisdom, by your spirit, you would be teaching us what we need to live rightly in this world of yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week, we saw that uh, this book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes that we had a bit read from, last week we saw that it tells us that um, reflecting on death helps us to live wisely. And we thought about the fact that it can be a helpful thing to reflect on on what you want said about yourself when you die. What do you want people to think of you, to say about you once you've died? That came up last week. I don't know if that prompted anybody to go and think about that. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. What would you want people to say about you after you've died? Well, uh, in fact, let's, let's do an exercise. I, I'll be quiet for a moment. I'll pause. And you, just where you are, sitting where you are, just have a think. 
Have a think in your mind. What is it that you would want people to say about you after you've died? I'll give you a moment. Have a think. Thought something? Great. Well, I'm not going to ask anybody in particular to, to give their answer, but we will try and make this interactive. Um, put your hand up if the thing you were thinking about that you would like people to say about you after you've died, uh, put your hand up if you would have wanted people to say that you can be remembered as the person who had the most money. No, I'm, not, I'm, I'm prompting you. That's not me. Um, no, interesting. Okay, put your hand up if you if you were thinking the thing you want people to say most about you when you've died is that you were successful. That's what you achieved. You got a good job, or owned a big business. No, no. Okay, interesting. Um, put your hands up if the thing you wanted people to remember about you after you died was that you you knew how to have a really nice luxury holiday that you were really good at, at living it up in your breaks, that, that you, you knew how to fill your house with lovely things. No, interesting. Well, that is interesting because when we stop and think, when we have a moment to think, and we know that we want to be thinking about this wisely, we do instinctively understand that orienting our lives now around gaining, I don't know, say, money or success or uh, luxury, we know that that would be a waste of life because none of us want to be remembered for that. Now, it is helpful that Ecclesiastes earlier on has shown us, um, has challenged us on that and actually revealed places where we do actually live like that, as if that was true. We do need it to tell us that, but deep down we do get it, though, don't we? We do get that that would have been a waste of our life because that's not how we want to be remembered. I suspect that probably what we want people to say about our lives after we've gone has got a lot more to do with the way that we treat others. To be, for people to say he was devoted, he was loving, he lived a self-giving life. Or maybe you want people to remember about you, your commitment to your faith. Josh was on fire for Jesus. Is that then how we should orient our lives, around that kind of thing? Is that how we should orient our lives, around living, doing what's right? The Bible calls that righteousness. Or living, making the right choices. The Bible calls that wisdom. Now, if you are thinking that you'll orient your life towards growing in righteousness and wisdom, well, there's something helpful about that. Last week's passage says that if... That's how you think about the end of your life. That's going to point you in the right direction. It's going to help you to make some better choices. But today's passage really surprised me. Today's passage really surprised me, and it'll probably surprise you too. Because here's the big thing. Today's passage says, don't orient your life around being righteous. And don't orient your life around being wise. And it's because it's there in this extremely surprising verse to find in the Bible. In verse 16, I bet you never expected you'd be reading this in the Bible today. Do not be over-righteous. I'm going to send you away from here today saying, well, in the rest of the week, don't be too good. Don't be over-righteous, guys. Don't give too much money to charity. 
Don't be too kind to your neighbour. Don't forgive too many people this week, whatever you do, guys, because it's here in the Bible. Is that what it's saying? I think it's saying not so much don't go and do a nice thing. It's saying we shouldn't be people who think, who orient our lives around being the righteous and the wise one. And here's why. And really, the reason why is a summary of of most of what Ecclesiastes has been trying to drum into us up till now. Orienting your life around righteousness, living righteously and living wisely, that is a chasing after the wind because you're not God. You're not God. Um, My children wake up before me. They often go downstairs before us, especially on a weekend. they, They go downstairs before us. Um, They'll spend a bit of time downstairs, maybe playing, maybe watching TV, but um, I'm still having a little bit of a sleep in on a Saturday morning. I don't know what they get up to, so it's always interesting. You never know what what you should expect when you get downstairs, uh, because the the two children who go downstairs are five and three. And, um, you know, sometimes there's breakages, sometimes there's spillages. You never know what you're going to find. It might be that I come downstairs and I find a whole load of um, clean washing strewn all over the floor, soaking wet. And I'll say, what have you done? And they'll say, oh, it's okay, Dad. We went to get a, a drink. We went, both got, got a cup of water. Um, and we were really careful. And we put it down, and, but it just knocked over by accident. It was an accident. But it's okay, because we found this pile, and it was just all dry. And so we've mopped it all up. And if you look at the carpet now, it's totally clean. You're welcome. <laughs> or maybe there's a big grey smudge on our white wall and we say what have you done and they say oh well we were doing some colouring and the pencil just accidentally made a line on the wall but it's okay because I went and got my my rubber from my pencil case and I've been scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing at this wall don't worry about it now I'm going to say to them hey guys in future don't try to fix that do I say that because I don't want them to learn to be helpful Do I say that because I don't want them to try and do what's right? No, I I do. But it's just that they are not an adult. They don't know the full picture. They can't make it right. Sometimes you just need an adult's help. You need to say, I'm a child and I need an adult's help here. The main thing wrong with what they've done isn't the fact that they've made a mess of it. The main thing wrong is that it's part of life to understand your limitations. To say, I don't have all the information available. I don't know the end from the beginning. Our children are not able to do what we are able to do, so we don't ask them to orient everything in their life around being the most helpful and right living person that we know. We would never want to say to them, guys, you've got to do what we do. We expect that when we come downstairs, our three-year-old has ordered our ads to shopping for the week on the computer. She can't even read. Well, that would be helpful. That would be right, but it's above her pay grade. It's, it's not what she's meant to do. It's not what she is able to do. And in the same way, God doesn't ask us to orient everything in our lives about becoming that one righteous and wise person. If you try to do that, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, look at verse 15, you'll find that it actually makes no difference to the way the world works. The righteous live and they die and they're forgotten. They are just like 
anybody else. In fact, you might even see wicked people live longer. It won't really do you any good in the grand scheme of things if you have set your life to be living righteously and wisely. There's no health benefits to that. That's not the point of your life. The right attitude is to accept verse 20. There is no one on earth who is righteous. There is no one who does what is right and never sins. That includes you. Now, we're warned not to go to the other extreme. Uh, In verse 17, uh, we're not to give in to every sinful impulse. So it sounds like verse 18 is kind of advocating this kind of middle road. Um, It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. It might sound to you like it's saying, um, make sure that you're balanced, do a bit of good. And it's okay, you do a a little bit of bad. I mean, that would be quite nice to take away with, isn't it? To say, balance it all out. So you walk along the street tomorrow and you, you know, give a pound to a homeless person. And then it's okay, you go into Tesco and swipe a, a, a baguette into your coat pocket. Or you come to the prayer meeting on a Sunday evening, that's a good thing. But, but actually, then on Monday morning you can call in sick, even though you're not sick in work, just to get a day off. Is it about balance? It's not that, it's about holding on to the view of yourself from both angles. It's about saying, I know it's good to do right, but I know I'm not God. Sure, serve others. Okay, fine, great. Obey the law, yes. Live with integrity, yeah. But don't kid yourself into the thinking that this kind-hearted, sacrificially giving life is the breakthrough society needs. You're cracking it. You're going to get there. You're going to be the person who really lives differently, lives rightly. Because you need to know that even your wisely lived life of doing good isn't going to change the world. That stays above your pay grade. You can live as well as you like. You're still not God. But Ecclesiastes does give us a little everyday life snapshot of how this is actually really quite liberating. Verse 21 and 22. Do not pay attention to every word people say. Or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Do not pay any uh, attention to every word people say. Isn't that a super relevant word to an increasingly sensitive culture? Why are we so easily offended or hurt by a little bit of criticism? Isn't that because we've forgotten how much we offend and criticise others? Because we are not keeping hold of one and not letting go of the other. If we think we're living wisely, if that's what we think our life is about, that's a life we're building, wise life, righteousness. You're doing lots of good things all the time. If that's what your life is all oriented about, then you will pay attention to every little thing someone says about you. Because that strikes at the very thing you're trying to build your life on. You realise you're not doing it right. It's offensive. It's hurtful. But, you know, Ecclesiastes freezes. Real wisdom means you're realistic about your own faults. You own them. And it spares you that pain of being brought down a peg or two. You already know where you are. As you navigate a world where you're trying to do right, yeah, you're trying to make wise choices, yes, and people will criticise you. Well, look, remembering that you're not God here. 
all that gives you the freedom to say to people who criticize you, okay, you're probably right. <laughs> it was never the deal that I was going to be the one who gets it all right. It probably is right that I've done these wrong things. What you say about me sounds unfair, but you know what? I'm not God, so you're probably right. Can you imagine how refreshing that is in a society that's easily offended? How countercultural this sounds like today. <coughs> Wisdom is admitting that what people say about us is just the stuff that we've said about other people too. And taking offense when people say that to us is just a way of kind of masking the fact that we're not as good as we think. Taking the high road when deep down you know in your heart, well, you're the same. You're not God. Another reason life can't be all about being righteous and wise is because no one else has managed it. You're not God, and at the risk of stating the obvious, no one else is either. <coughs> when I was 12, we moved house into um, a house that was in the rural countryside village. And um, the first two Christmases that we spent in that house, we spent that day with, without electricity. There was a power cut. I remember Christmas Eve, 1997, I was sat in my living room. A vivid memory of it, I was playing my Game Boy. It was about 6pm, and... Um, the lights went out, plunged into pitch darkness. <clears throat> when you're living in a rural village and there's a power cut, the first thing you do, even if it's night, is you go to the window. Why do you go to the window? Because you want to know if anyone else's Christmas lights are still on. You want to know if there's lights on in any other house. Because if... Mrs. Jones over the road has got her Christmas lights on, and Mr. Griffiths down the street has got lights on in every room, then you, you know that the, pa the problem is with your house, your house alone. And so you go to your fuse box, you, you fiddle around, you flip a few switches, you see if you can solve the problem, and maybe you can solve the problem in your own house. But if you go to the window and you find that, I mean, this was the first time it happened, you went to the window, we looked out, and, and everything was dark. No Christmas lights, no outdoor lights, no lights on the inside. Everybody's lights had gone completely off, not even the street lights. Well, that's important to know. That's an important bit of information because it tells you that we could go and change as many light bulbs as we like. We can fiddle with the fuse box as much as we like, but if everybody's lights are off, then the problem goes much deeper. It's not a problem that we can solve. Well, the teacher goes to the window. If life is about being righteous and wise, says the teacher, then let's go to the window and see if anyone else has managed it. See if the lights are on in anyone else's window. Verse 23 and 24, he says, I am determined to be wise, but it was beyond me. But still he goes seeking to see if anyone lives like this. And he gives us his report in verses 26 to 29. Firstly, he sees that so many people are failing to live this righteous and wise life because they're derailed by sexual snares. That's the woman in verse 26. He describes her in the language of seduction, in the language of destruction. He describes a woman who's a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains. He, that's not talking about a specific woman he knows, and I don't think that's talking about every woman. It's not a comment on women in general. 
It's a personification, it's a metaphor of sexual temptation, of irresistible seduction. And this, says the teacher, has claimed many victims in this life quest for living rightly and wisely. He says she is consuming many people, and that's worse than death. He wants us to know that's the world we live in. So if we're going to navigate life wisely, we do have to reckon with the presence of this black hole of sexual temptation. But he goes on to his conclusion. We still want to know, are the lights on in other people's rooms? Is it going to be possible to to orient our life around being righteous, around being wise? Well, he comes to his conclusion. Verse 27. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Now, obviously, that sits quite uncomfortably to our ears. This might be the bit that you were waiting for. What's he going to say about this one? Um, So we do need to explain what might be going on here. Some people say that this is just the writer's experience. It's not um, a comment in general on the differences between men and women. Some people think that this just reflects the company the writer keeps. Some people would say, um, well, he hasn't found an upright woman, but I'm sure you will. It's probably that he hasn't looked hard enough. More likely than that, I think it's a common way of writing in this type of literature, where you pair two statements together that mean the same thing, even if it looks a bit different, uh, but it just expresses it differently. It's not meant as a contrast, but it's meant as an emphasis. It's like he's saying, I've hardly found any upright men, and women are no better. Perhaps he's put it that way because he's writing from the perspective of a man. If it was a woman, she would say, I could... I've hardly found any upright women. And men are no better. It's it's like those hand gel uh, or hand washes that claim they kill 99.99% of germs. I'm not really sure that the scientists have located that 0.01% of germs. It's still there. Uh, Basically, they just mean, I think it's everything. They can't say 100% just in case someone finds one, but they think it's everything. And his point here isn't there's a difference between men and women, let's contrast them, one man in a thousand but not any women. It's more like he's having real trouble finding anyone who has succeeded in living the life of righteousness and wisdom. He's found that 99.99% of people, men and women, 99.99%, everyone, right? Everyone is getting the life of righteousness and wisdom wrong. And so that's the conclusion. Don't orient your life around being righteous and wise because you're not God and neither is anyone else. This kind of good living is beyond our pay grade. This is not what life is about. That's surprising, right? I was quite sure that I wanted to be remembered as a devoted dad, a loving husband, someone who put others first. I wanted to be remembered as someone who made the world a better place, someone who even sacrificed for the sake of others. 
I wanted to be known as someone who loved God <clears throat> and made wise choices. I was going to aim for righteousness and wisdom. But no, says Ecclesiastes, that's chasing after the wind. That's like trying to catch a bubble and put it in my pocket for later. It's like trying to make my bed on a nice, soft, fluffy cloud. Sounds like a good idea, but it's not going to happen. Not enough to matter anyway. So what is my life about? Here's the thing. You're not God. No one else is either. But God is. There's a clue about the right way to live in verse 18 where it says, Whoever fears God will avoid both extremes. Fear God. That's not the first time that this has come up in Ecclesiastes. We need to start learning that life isn't about making yourself as righteous and wise as you can be, even though that sounds to us like a life well lived, even though that sounds to us like a good idea. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea, but it sounded like a good idea to dry the carpet with a pile of clean washing. It sounded like a good idea to try and rub the pencil off the wall with a rubber. I don't want my kids to act on what seems like a good idea. I don't want them to imagine that they are all wise or that they know what the righteous life is like. And I don't want them to try and solve all their problems by being righteous and wise. What do I want them to do? Come and ask me. Ask me for help. I know more than them. I see the big picture. I'm able to solve that mess. I think those ones, not everything. And you know what? If they came and asked me, what would I say? I love them dearly. And I will use everything that's at my disposal to do what is best for them. So don't orient your life around trying to be the most wise and righteous you can be. Turn to God. Fear him. Be a creature. Let him be God. Fear God. That means, that means knowing him as the creature in front of his terrifying awesomeness as God. It means feeling small in his bigness and vastness. It means coming to him weak before his awesome might. And it means trembling in fearful joy to know that this awesome one looks at tiny you, insignificant, fleeting, wicked you, and he loves you so much. That he bends all his wisdom and power to do what is good for you. If this is what it means to fear God, then whoever fears God is free from the extreme of the crushing weight of thinking you've got to live your life as the most righteous person. And you're free from the consuming poison of the other extreme, the poison of foolishness. 
Whoever fears God is free to own their own failings when we hear people criticise us and say hurtful or unfair things about us. Because we know our failings. We know we've just said that about someone else. And yes, people curse us back, but we know we fear God because he loves us. He doesn't curse us back. The truly wise life fears God. The truly wise life leaves righteousness to him. It is a problem if we can't live righteously. The Bible does actually say, you know, if you can't live righteously, God knows, he finds out, and there is a punishment. It's not okay to not live righteously, but we are in a bit of a mess if we can't live righteously. But this is why fear makes us tremble and tremble with unspeakable joy. Because when we fear God, we see that he sent his son to be the only wise and righteous person. And then to credit that wisdom and righteousness to us, to say, you can have that. This is now you. You can be called righteous. It's yours. Later in the Bible, we're shown that everything life has to offer Every achievement I can ever achieve, every righteous thing that I've ever done, every drip of wisdom that I've ever lived by, we're shown in the Bible, that is like a bag of rubbish compared to fearing God and knowing that you do have a righteousness that wasn't what you achieved in your life, but it was given to you as a gift. The righteousness that comes from God through Jesus. So listen, the truly wise life isn't oriented around what I'm going to be. The truly wise life is fearing God for the grace that he's given me in Jesus. It is grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. Let's pray. Dear Father, we feel it's only right to acknowledge before you that we are not wise and we are not righteous. We have heard the teachers say that nobody is. And so we don't want to imagine before you that our life is this pursuit of doing what is right, imagining that this is something we'll succeed in. Father, we want to come before you as people who are the same as others, who have gotten it all wrong. Yet we still have the cheek to take offence at what they say about us. Lord, we are sorry for this, but we, we love how you reveal in your word to us that we are freed from the crushing burden of trying to make that righteousness our own. Thank you, Lord, that we can leave free and unburdened able to take criticism on the chin, able to to see foolishness for what it is and, and avoid it where we can. And thank you most of all that you've given us the grace to teach us to fear you, to know Jesus Christ, to know him as our righteousness 
and to have our fears relieved by the dear gift of your precious Son. In Jesus' name, amen.